This just in, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. Tomorrow marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, when terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and United Airlines Flight 93 led to the deaths of nearly 3,000 people. It's a day that launched wars and shifted politics in this country forever. For American Muslims, 9-11 is also the day their community, today about 3.5 million strong, were pushed under a microscope they haven't been able to escape since. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Friday, September 10th, 2021. Today, we focus on how 9-11 and its aftermath continues to loom over the lives of Muslims in the United States. Later in the episode, we'll hear from young Muslims who grew up in the shadows of 9-11. But first, we talk to LA Times television critic Lorraine Ali about how it affected her life, her career, and her community. Lorraine, welcome to The Times. Thank you. Good to be here. So on September 11th, 2001, you were in a market in Cairo and you had to explain the significance of the World Trade Center bombings to puzzled onlookers. What do you remember from that day? Well, you know, I was there on a vacation and we're walking around in this old marketplace in the middle of Cairo. And I saw a bunch of locals gathered around an old television set that was inside this brass shop in the souk. And they were looking at clearly something big had happened on the news. And I saw something on fire on this old fritzing television. AP Network News. I'm Rita Foley. A plane apparently has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. We go live now to New York and our Robin Walensky. Robin, what can you tell us? Well, Rita, uh, the plane crashed into the World Trade Center just moments ago. Tower number one. Smoke is billowing out of the building from the upper floors of Tower One. You can see the smoke for miles and miles. The plane they didn't know what it was. They were asking each other in Arabic, which I speak a little bit of, not great. Where is that? What is that? And I heard these boys asking, is that Palestine? And, you know, an old man saying, no, no, that's not what that is. Where is it? I don't know. And I had to tell them, that's the World Trade Center in New York City. Here, I thought it was so ironic later because the U.S. media would be telling us the terrorists chose that spot because it, it symbolized, you know, American power around the world. It was just iconic spot. And, you know, nobody knew what it was. I had to explain to them what it was. Once they realized that it was in the United States, you could feel it. Right then, it was like, we're going to pay. There's going to be retribution for this. You know, my first thought was, my God, I'm in Egypt. Is there going to be retribution while we're here? But I knew. I knew from that moment on, there is going to be hell to pay for this and you know who's going to pay it's going to be the middle east it's going to be muslims and it's going to be unfortunately muslim americans you just knew it why specifically muslim americans 
There was already a distrust. If you think about like the Oklahoma City bombing. We have at this time no assumptions with regard to who caused this particular bombing. And we have had hundreds, if not thousands, of leads. Who was the first people that they thought had done that? They weren't looking for, you know, white separatists. They were looking for Muslims when that happened. It didn't turn out to be that. That had been the go-to. Judging by the uh, nature of the attack, the uh, context, possible motivations, I think uh, Islamic fundamentalists are the most likely suspects. And there had been incidents before that. There had been that previous, you know, bombing at the World Trade Center. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman could face life in prison when he and his co-defendants are sentenced on Wednesday. The blind preacher and implacable opponent of Egypt's government was convicted in October of directing a wide-ranging terror plot against New York City. Before he was sentenced to life, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman declared the U.S. had put Islam on trial. Nonsense, says James Kalstrom, who heads the New York office of the FBI. Guys, this is not a, a war against Islam. This is a war against terrorists. You know, we had had already the first Gulf War. We had had already all these interventions in the Middle East. So there was already this demonization of Muslims and Middle Easterners in Hollywood and the politicization of, you know, anti-Muslim rhetoric. So, of course, that was the first go-to. I just knew it. I could just feel it. For many Americans who aren't Muslims or have ties to the military, 9-11 came and went, and you remember it mostly once a year, but for American Muslims, it's something you've had to live with daily ever since it happened. And over the past 20 years, a rise in hate crimes, legislation targeting Islamic countries, and wars across the Middle East. How did 9-11 change life for you and your family across the world? Well, to start with, there was no longer the idea of you can just kind of roll along as somebody with the last name Ali and not explain yourself. Either shrink way back or you completely have to explain who you are. There just was no longer a in-between space. In terms of how it affected my family across the globe, you know, they are Iraqi and they lived in Baghdad up until 2003. And when the 2003 invasion of Baghdad, which was coming off of essentially 9-11, that was all cascading from that, U.S. sources say the Iraqi military is digging in to protect Baghdad. One official describes it as the largest defensive preparation since Desert Storm. The buildup follows threats from the U.S. of attacking Iraq and toppling Saddam Hussein. To go for a war in Iraq, believe me, it will be a disaster from a humanitarian perspective. There's even a risk if there are bacteriological and chemical weapons that people there will die because of the attack. A long stream of women carrying small children and bags with headscarves on and their husbands and sons beside them are walking into the city now and then they're allowed free passage into the city of Fallujah. Some of them were killed. The majority of them scattered. They lost their homeland. They were displaced. The fallout from that is still happening now. I mean, in even trying to get them over to the U.S., the Muslim ban um, affected us. I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. The amount of Muslim and Arab bashing in Hollywood, on the media. Islam and Christianity are two entirely different religious views, and people confuse it when they say all roads lead to heaven, all roads lead to the same place, all religions are religions of love. That's not so. Much of Islam, particularly the radical Islamist movement that we see in the prisons, 
is dedicated towards hatred and violence and resentment. Hamas uh, claimed they did it with some sense of, of celebration. Clearly that kind of commitment to violence uh, uh, must be stopped. In this war, we defend not just America or Europe, we are defending civilization itself. And then you look at the political leveraging of it in campaigns from even before Trump and what that did in terms of rising hate crimes, Muslim bans, no-fly lists, whatever it was, that was life. Like, that's how we had to live. We'll be right back. Lorraine, you recently wrote an essay about living in the aftermath of 9-11 and tied it to the many, many TV specials about it that have either aired or will air. But you also focused on what these documentaries don't show. Right. What they don't show is the long tail end of what happened from 9-11. We have a lot of specials about what happened the day, you know, those buildings fell and about the victims and about the buildings themselves, about the kids that grew up in its wake and all those things, of course, are important to remember and how could we forget and all of those things. But how can you capture this long tale, this 20 years of what it's meant for the countries that we have invaded, bombed since then, of the people who have paid with their lives, whether Muslim Americans who have substantially had their lives completely changed. You can't really capture that, I think, in one documentary, and you're not going to see that. And it is really hard to capture in itself. That's why, you know, when they asked me, do you want to write something about 9-11 as a television critic about all these documentaries that are coming out? I'm like, I don't see one that's going to capture what it meant to me and what it meant for my family. And nothing's going to look like that. Lorraine, you're a SAS, a television critic. How has the past 20 years of Muslim depictions in media, have they affected Muslim Americans? Yeah, it's been a brutal path. I mean, I, I have to say the last two decades, and I wrote about this in the essay, have been some of the hardest as a journalist, as a Muslim American, as a person raising a Muslim son in this country, and somebody who looks Middle Eastern, watching American Sniper, um, even Wonder Woman, just how incredibly demonized and one-dimensional those characters were that's all changed. And I think the next generation and the next generation see themselves differently on the screen. They see themselves, period. They actually get to see themselves with Hassan Minhaj or with Ramir or with Aziz Ansari. I think there is a really hopeful place in terms of where scripted television is going. And I do think in terms of the media, when you're watching the news, where that used to be only embedded with the troops, where that used to be very one-sided. There is a big difference now in terms of how Muslims and Arabs are covered. And I think a lot of that has to do with the democratization with social media. And the hope is in what your son's seeing. And you mentioned your son at the end of the essay. What does he know about 9-11? My son knows America was attacked. He knows that terrorists did this. He knows it was horrible. But thank God he doesn't know I don't want to cry. The sort of pain we went through. 
he didn't have to go through that. And I think I'm so grateful for that. He knows that Muslims have to work a lot harder to be trusted and to be looked at as Americans that are Americans. But he doesn't know that hell that we went through. And he also doesn't really know the depth of the hell that his relatives went through. I'm glad for that because I don't want those scars on him. But he knows it was a horrible, horrible day. But it doesn't leave the same scars, I think, that it did for maybe a generation before him. And I'm so thankful for that. Lorraine, thank you for this interview. Thank you. Next up, we hear from young Muslim Americans who only know 9-11 from the history books, but have had to live in its shadows. On a Friday night in early August, L.A. Times reporter Brittany Mejia visited the Islamic Institute of Orange County in Anaheim. She caught a group of American Muslim teenage girls who meet up every week to talk about everyday things like what it means to live a good life, but also contemporary issues like anti-Muslim discrimination that they've experienced growing up in a post 9-11 world. Brittany, welcome to The Times. Thanks for having me. So this group you met, what were you there to talk to them about? Yeah, so we actually asked these girls to sit down together with a reporter and a photographer and actually chat with us about what it is to navigate day-to-day life post 9-11, like what the feeling is like if they're still, you know, living kind of in the shadow of what happened and for many of them what happened before they were born. So I talked to a range of young women, those who were born here, but also those who migrated to the U.S. um, in the last decade when they were children, you know, some from Syria. Um, Some of them were really young when 9-11 happened. Others weren't even born yet, but they were still able to recall the impact that day had on their families and how their families' lives changed. One of the girls was 16-year-old Leon Alazil. Her family was not yet living in America during 9-11, so she didn't even really know what had happened. Yet she was still stereotyped and blamed by her classmates at school for being Muslim and, quote, responsible for 9-11. And so when I came here and I started, like, learning about 9-11 and all of that, and it was, like, people that did know, like, I was Muslim and, like, Arab, it was, like, a, like, sinking into my seat. Like, the jokes that would be made about it were just, like, so, like, unnecessary, especially, like, with kids, like, during lunch and all that. Like, oh, you're going to bomb us like you did on 9-11. It's just, like, to the point where it's, like, like it's not funny. Other girls like 22-year-old Salma Nazardine were really young when 9-11 happened. She was like a year old. And they talked about how women in their family specifically decided to hide anything that would signal that they were Muslim for fear of being attacked. That day, like, all the, the all this were like at aunties and like they literally called up like their kids and they like all t- took them home. And like there were ladies taking off their hijab after that. And my mom was telling me like half of her friends took off their hijab just because it's like, there was a lot of hate yeah. for onto Muslim women. Yeah. And then, I mean, like, we didn't get we didn't get that after effect directly since we weren't really born in that time. But I think there's still, like, little little pieces that, like, stay. Because yeah. 
Post 9-11, Islamophobia definitely went on a spike, therefore like creating kind of like a harsh environment for us to grow up in. Yeah. And obviously like I'm pushing when I say harsh because I've never had my hijab ripped off of my head and alhamdulillah, like thank God. So how did that anti-Muslim bigotry affect them growing up? Yeah, it really, what was shocking to me was how much it persisted kind of day to day in school still. I mean, the jokes about people having bombs in their backpacks or jokes about them being terrorists. I mean, there were kids that we had interviewed in some cases that were like, oh, I didn't fast during Ramadan because I didn't want to get asked questions about it in school. You know, some who distanced themselves entirely from their religion. You know, one of the girls at this mosque was 17-year-old Dalal Oyun, who grew up feeling embarrassed about being Muslim. Like, I don't know if it was just me, but, like, I was honestly, like, super ashamed. Or not ashamed, but, like, I was just, like, embarrassed to, like, say, like, oh, like, I'm Arab, like, I'm Muslim. Until, like, a few, like, years ago, where, like, I was like, oh, my God, I should be proud of this. But I think it was just, like, the way, like, people would ask questions. Brittany, you talked to young Muslim women. How do you think the experiences of them differed from that of young Muslim men? Because the United States, of course, you have the stereotypes, Muslim women being subservient, Muslim men being the terrorists. Yeah, I mean, this became a basically all-female-focused story. In one of the cases I interviewed, a daughter and her with her two parents, and her dad even said, like, he's from Mauritania, and he was like, I'm not visibly you know, Muslim, like my wife wears the hijab, my daughter wears the hijab, like they are clearly visibly Muslim. And so the way that they navigate the world is completely different. So despite the discrimination some of these girls are facing for wearing the hijab, regardless, I think a lot of them are making the decision to still wear it. It's a personal choice that they're making and they're thinking about because for many of them, it's kind of a representation of their religion. I think that hijab is way more than oh, just a cloth around your head. It comes with so many more responsibilities. Like when you wear the hijab, you're highlighted. So you have to pay attention to the way you act with people. I don't want to be oh, rude to, to, to someone. And like back to what someone was saying about how like one person has like that one bad encounter with a, with a Muslim, they're like, oh, well, all Muslims are bad. It's like, I don't want to give that bad idea to anyone. I just think that like hijab is just so much more than that like you it's it's not even it's not even just about oh i have to wear a piece of cloth around my head it's like the way you're like representing that religion a lot of what they were telling you Brittany, was just the stereotypes they faced or they felt the anti-muslim perceptions that they felt from other classmates but did any speak specifically about hate that they experienced firsthand because they're visibly muslim Yeah, actually, I talked to 18-year-old Hannah Nashawadi, and she told me a few, actually. But one of the stories she had mentioned was when she had, you know, gone bike riding and someone told her, go back to your country, you terrorist. But then she also told me about a recent experience, actually, from that day when she was out with her friends at the Orange County Fair. We were in the bathroom, and this woman was, like, giving us, like, the dirtiest stairs for what? Like, we didn't even do anything. We were just standing waiting for our friend to, like, finish using the bathroom. And she was like, I need the sink. And, like, all the sinks were open. We were standing next to one sink. And she was like, I need that sink. She kept, like, looking out. And, like, she had, like, the dirtiest stare on her face for us. Like, 
why like like we're like no one's talking to her nobody's like looking at her like i don't know it's just like funny because it's like a lot of people like it's like why are you staring like what did like they have they've perceived islam so badly where it's like you don't know like a lot of times like why someone's looking at you And now tomorrow's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Afghanistan's back in the news. Once again, the national media is speaking about Islam and terrorism. How are the images and narratives from 20 years ago to now affecting the people that you talk to? How others perceive them, but also how they perceive themselves? Yeah, I think one of the main things that sticks out is that just this feeling, especially in the Muslim community, that when there's a terrorist attack or when there's things like this, I mean, there's a worry, there's a fear from them saying like, you know, God, please don't let it be a Muslim because they know that what's going to persist in the news cycle is a focus on their community, is a demand for them to basically condemn the attacks, which I think that was a big point of frustration for so many people is that that has continued to persist and seemingly will continue to persist over the years. Brittany, the young Muslims that you talk to, they're in their late teens, early 20s. Do they have any hope that things will ever get better for Muslim Americans? Oh, definitely. I think that was one of the things that really stood out to me as well, is that there is a hope. I mean, they're seeing slight changes. They're seeing more representation of women wearing hijabs, like in stores and things like that. And it's just small things that they're starting to notice that are different and that matter to them. Or the sense that, like, you know, we're not going to stay quiet anymore and we're not going to put up with this. Being able to say that, hey, I was also born here. This is a country that I live in and this is a country that I need to take an effort to, I need to make sure that I vote, I need to make sure that I know what bills are being passed, et cetera, et cetera, and who I'm voting for. So having that be something that I hold as a value also helps with knowing that, that this is what needs to be done. Our mentality as younger people living here is flourish, grow, like let your presence be known, let Islam be known, let your feminine shine like everything anything that you want like you can do that now because we have those opportunities Brittany thank you so much for this conversation thanks so much for having me And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Next week, what can we learn from the NFL's battle with COVID-19? Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Ashley Brown, Melissa Kaplan, and Marina Peña. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Eadman. Special thanks to Hiba El Orbani. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puchia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news in this madre. Gracias. <laughs>